if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. One of the recurring segments on this podcast is Book Club, in which Corey Lakatos and I discuss Catholic novels that we like and that have impressed us in some way or another. Now, if you're curious about what we think makes a story or novel Catholic in the first place, you can go back and check episode 30, which we called Welcome to Book Club. In today's episode, we actually talked about two novels, The Power and the Glory, published in 1940 by the English author Graham Greene, and Silence, published in 1966 by the Japanese author Shusaku Endo. Now, they're both classics considered among the greatest Catholic novels of the 20th century. These two books are often seen as parallels, or I would actually argue mere images. They share the same topics and theological and moral themes, but the characters and plot lines are sort of inverted between them. And so, for that reason, we discussed them together and called it A Tale of Two Priests. So, Corey, we decided to treat these two novels um, together. Right. And really, honestly, they're both award-winning, some of the greatest Catholic novels acclaimed of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, And either of them could be a book discussion, book club discussion on their own, just of the individual merits of the book. But we decided to treat them, uh, in a sense, together in this conversation. Um, And we talked a lot about that and kind of came to that conclusion and decided to call it A Tale of True Priests. you want to share why we decided to do sure. that? Sure. Uh, and that decision like isn't completely unique to us. The two novels have been compared a lot. Um, uh, so Endo um, is writing, I think he's about 20 years younger than, than Graham Greene is. Um, and his, his novel Silence was kind of called the, the Japanese uh, yeah. It was Power released, and the Glory. Yeah, it was released 26 yeah. late, years later. So mm-hmm. Power and the Glory was 1940. Uh, Endo, uh, Silence was... It's 1966, so yeah, it's really right. kind of a generation. Right, yeah. Um, and, and, and so other people have certainly noticed the similarities in the novels, and, and so um, we can get into a bigger synopsis, but basically both of them are a story about a priest who is ministering in a situation of persecution, um, one in Mexico in, in Green's novel and the other in Japan in Endo's novel, um, and it, it's about their, the struggle that they have with that, um, how they come to terms with it, and then, of course, their, their fate at, at the end, what actually happens to them as a result of all of that. Well, and, and not only are they parallel, they're in an inverse parallel or mm-hmm. a mirror image. So in The Power and the Glory, you have a priest who seeks to avoid martyrdom. The last mm-hmm. thing he wants to do is to become a martyr. Well, and he's and, in many ways a very bad priest. Yeah, he's a bad, a bad <laughs> but priest. But he's still ministering. A bad pri- well, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll get to that, right? But don't, right. don't jump to that quick, mm-hmm. too quick. 
because the if you look at the gist of the story and how they sort of mirror image each other, you have basically a bad priest with low ambition and mm-hmm. no desire to be a martyr who's committed to, to comfort mm-hmm. and his own sort of sensual pleasure and, you know, wants a comfortable life. And in the end, ends up becoming a martyr mm-hmm. and sort of a saint. In silence, you have a young priest who actually goes to the mission field seeking glorious martyrdom. And he's a highly educated, successful, mm-hmm. ambitious, and ambitious to give his life mm-hmm. for Christ on the mission field, uh, who in the end, um, well, doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so they become this kind of mere image inversion of each right, other, right. which raises an interesting question about because they were a generation apart, and the new novels have been compared, whether Indo, in a sense, intended his novel to be something of a response to Grand Green's novel. Yeah, and, and that's possible. I mean, we know that Endo read Green. I mean, Green was very popular at that, that mid-century. Right. Because, you know, I thought about that as I was preparing for our discussion today and kind of rereading both books. And there's actually, I found passages in Indo's book that are almost like reflections or quotes or not direct quotations, but clearly he's um, echoing some of the things that Green said in his book, but in some sense, um, or inverting them or maybe kind of pushing back at them a little bit. And I know we'll get into this at some point here in the conversation, which is why I've always had kind of ambivalent feelings about um, silence a, a little bit, because Graham Green's book is such an orthodox book. It's so orthodox, I believe, in its, in its message. And so Indo always kind of feels like a little bit of a pushback. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people have taken it that way. I think a lot of people have. Um, I, I think there's ambiguity in both novels that we can talk about. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into that. First of all, let's, for those who haven't read them, we're going to share a little plot synopsis of each. And let me say, if you haven't read them and you don't want to know what happens, then I guess you can, you know, um, back out of the podcast right now. But like these are classic novels and uh, I don't think that what happens in them is a big secret. And I don't think that knowing what happens in them diminishes from the power of the novel. I mean, I've read both of them multiple times and every time I read it, even knowing how it ends, it's, I get more out of it. So mm. we're going to give you spoilers. So Corey, why don't you start and give a quick synopsis of Grand Green's The Power and the Glory? Sure. Um, so in that book, we have um, a priest who we never actually get a name for the priest, but he is um, ministering in the Mexican state of Tabasco in the 30s, 1930s. But he does have, a, he is a, he has a colloquial, I mean, he has a slang name. Oh, sure. Uh, yes. A nickname. And yeah. that nickname actually is is indicative or, or, you know, inciting to the character. So Right, yeah. So so he's called the Whiskey Priest um, because he's, he's a drunkard. Um, he, he's essentially an alcoholic um, and he has other moral failings. Um, he has clearly fallen into sexual sin um, with, with a woman and, and that's resulted in a, in a daughter that um, he's fathered. Um, and he is now in this, in this state where the communist government is persecuting and essentially trying to eliminate entirely the, the Catholic church. Um, and he's considered by the authorities to be the last practicing priest. Um, and he's on the in run the, in, state of in, Tabasco. in the state of Tabasco. So the character of the whiskey priest is ministering covertly in this Mexican state of Tabasco um, that has been trying to eliminate the church quite ruthlessly. Um, and Graham Greene actually um, witnessed this firsthand. He was uh, in Mexico for um, a number of months in 1938. 
um, and saw what the government, the communist government was doing there to the church. Um, he, he, in fact, said that that was when he became a Christian himself um, during that time when he was witnessing what was going on in Mexico. Um, but So the whiskey priest is the last priest who's ministering in the state of Tabasco. All of the others have either been executed or have been forced by the government to renounce the priesthood, um, stop celebrating the sacraments, and to take wives, um, to basically live this lay existence as a rejection of their priesthood and of the church. Uh, there's a character, Padre Jose, um, in the novel who is one of these priests who has renounced the priesthood. And so the novel picks up with the whiskey priest, whose actual name we never learn, covertly going from village to village, celebrating the sacraments, the mass, baptisms, confession. Um, he uh, encounters or kind of is, is running away from this is sort of game of cat and mouse with this uh, police lieutenant who is looking for him as the last priest who's operating. Um, and this lieutenant has actually been authorized to take hostages from villages um, that are practicing the faith and that are harboring the priest um, and execute them. Um, so we, we see that happen in the novel. Um, that uh, I believe it's a young boy uh, is is executed um, as basically a hostage um, because he's trying to draw out the priest, and so we we see him uh, going through uh, this this on the run existence of ministering, but also um, his own moral failings and doubts. Um, he's an alcoholic, so in addition to trying to get wine uh, to celebrate the mass, he's also trying to get liquor for himself. Um, Incidentally, both um, all kinds of spirits had been outlawed um, in the province um, and especially wine so that they can't celebrate the mass. And so he is, we see that moral failing. We see that he's fallen into sexual sins. He's uh, fathered a child that we meet um, in the course of the novel. And he is trying to get out of the province so that he can avoid persecution, but he always seems to be drawn back in. And that's a very interesting part of his character is that he's really, in many ways, a more morally reprehensible priest, but he is continuing to minister. And, and he, um, towards the climax of the novel, is actually out of the province. He has, he has gotten out. He has escaped to relative safety in a neighboring province where the persecution is not nearly as bad. And he receives a call to hear the dying confession of a man back in Tabasco. And he goes, um, and that's ultimately the, the trap that leads to his arrest and his execution at the end of the novel. And when he goes, he knows full well he's being let into Right, he's, he's pretty certain that it's going to be a trap. Right. But there is, in fact, a dying man who did ask for confession, too. So, so there's that element of it. Um, there's this character who's a sort of figure of Judas who betrays him, who leads him into the custody of of the police lieutenant. And there's a very interesting element of the end where he is executed because we don't actually see the execution itself. We hear about it and we hear about people's reactions to it. Um, and we hear the reaction of a young boy um, who earlier in the novel had kind of been chafing at his, his mother's um, Catholic religious um, education attempts to instill the faith in him. But this young boy is, is inspired by um, the example, by essentially the martyrdom of this whiskey priest, and is seen at the end of the novel welcoming another priest into his home. We find out that, that the whiskey priest was not, in fact, the last priest in, in the state of Tabasco. And so we have a very interesting way that this man, who's not a good priest, not a good Christian in many ways, in his moral failings, 
but is also continuing to do his duty to live out his vocation and ultimately dies for it. Yeah. Great. Okay. Now, uh, 26 years later, mm-hmm. uh, Shusaku Indu, Endo, Shusaku Indu, Shusaku Indo. <laughs> yes. I, I just, names. yeah. No, no, it's not that. <laughs> We're sitting out here uh, recording in One Whirling Adventures outdoor compound. And so uh, the sun is uh, clearly, uh, you know, befuddling me. Yes. But uh, Endo, 66 years later, writes it. Now, Endo is an interesting character because he is a Christian in Japan. And a lot of people don't realize the rich history of Catholicism in Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, at our other venture, uh, the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization, we did, uh, at one point, we did a, a video about the Japanese Christians and the Catholicism that was richly developed in Japan and how, in some ways, Japan kind of became the, the Rome of the East uh, in the 17th century before it was persecuted by the Tokugawa sh- shogunate. Mm-hmm. And Catholicism was, was really richly embedded there. And it, was, it had been embedded there because of Jesuit missionaries, right. principally from Portugal. Yep, St. Francis Xavier. And, and, and others yep. who followed. And they went to, and, and then later some, some other orders, mm-hmm. uh, the Augustinians and others who went in there. But they had uh, started uh, Catholic missions, and then they took off. There were Catholic seminaries and colleges and everything else. In Japan, at one point before uh, the shogunate rose, Tokugawa shogunate rose, and and put it and brutally put down, and so Catholicism in Japan for hundreds of years kind of went underground, mm-hmm. and it became kind of a suppressed minority community, and so Indo himself grew up in this uh, Japanese Catholic community in Japan that you know had a history of hundreds and hundreds of years, but of of being sort of a minority religion sort of a suppressed religion. And so out of that experience, he drew back to those days of the Portuguese missionaries coming and writes this novel, Silence. So why don't you share the uh, synopsis of the plot of Silence? Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, two priests um, at the beginning of Silence who are trying to get into Japan. So we have uh, Father Rodriguez, who's our main character, um, and Father uh, Garpe, um, who is with him. And they, back in Portugal, have learned that their old mentor, Father Ferreira, who had gone to Japan, um, has apparently apostatized and turned away from the faith and become a crony of the Japanese government. Um, And they're all shocked and scandalized by this, and they want to go and find him, figure out what has happened, and also um, minister and die as martyrs. Yeah. Now, you said shocked and scandalized. One of the things that's interesting in the book is that uh, Father Rodriguez, particularly um, the, the protagonist, can't believe it. Mm-hmm. He says Ferraro was like the most uh, godly missionary, um, and he had been their uh, professor, their instructor right. at a Jesuit yeah, sem- seminary. seminary, Jesuit seminary in Portugal, and he had talked to them about missions and the glory of dying on the mission field as a martyr, and he had actually inspired their generation to go off and seek martyrdom mm-hmm. on the mission field. He said, I refuse to believe I need to go find him because I refuse to believe that a man like Ferrara would ever turn away from martyrdom. Right. And so that becomes kind of an interesting plot thing, which you'll get to in a second here, obviously, uh, because he goes, he, he, he's committed, Rodriguez is committed to martyrdom, right. committed to glorious martyrdom. He imagines someday that, you know, hundreds of years now, people will remember how the glorious way I gave up my body to the flames or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's see, in a sense seeking that out. And he, it's impossible for him to believe that his mentor and hero 
would ever turn aside from that path, which is, of course, leads to the sort of aha surprise of the novel. Right, exactly. Um, And so we follow these two young priests as they get into Japan um, with the help of of this man, uh, Kichihiro, or I may be mispronouncing the Japanese name wrong. And so they get in and they start ministering covertly um, to the Japanese Christians um, in this remote village um, where they haven't been found out by the government um, because this is after the government has already really brutally um, stomped on the Catholic community in Japan. And eventually um, he is captured. Both of them are captured and put in prison. And we um, begin to see the, the strategy that these uh, Japanese government officials are using to try and break the priests. Um, so f- first, um, we see um, them basically making uh, Father Rodriguez witness to the martyrdoms of, of these Christians. Remind me of the exact method. I, I know it's um, out in the water. Are they being crucified? Yeah, the they're water? they're sort of crucified in, yeah. in, in the in the ocean. Oh, in the sea. And so what happens is as the as the waves, as the breakers come over them, they mm-hmm. can't breathe because they kind of come over their head and then they try to lift their head and mm-hmm. it's just this kind of brutal uh, they die by exposure into the mm-hmm. and suffocation in the waves. Right. And and so Father Rodriguez is being made to to witness this, um, and he's horrified by it. But then we also see that the other priest that was that was uh captured Father Garpe is, is being, they're trying to coerce him into recanting and, and apostatizing um, because of what they're doing to the other Christians. And Father Garpe does not do that. He, in fact, dies with them. Which, depending on how you interpret this novel, mm-hmm. right, and, and we'll get into the compare and contrast, isn't interesting to me because when I first read it many, many years ago, but I always felt that the way that this book sort of goes, that Rodriguez's failure is all the more not only poignant, I wouldn't say poignant, actually more shameful. Sure. Because Garpe was strong. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've always felt that what happens after this becomes a complex rationalization for Rodriguez's weakness. Right. He he could be like Garpe, but he chooses not to. Yeah. And when he goes on, this is impossible, nobody can do this, this isn't the right thing to do, blah, 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 blah. It's all like this complex rationalization because his buddy. Garpe didn't have these qualms. Right. He sort of stepped up and, you know, manned up and <laughs> did, did, did his duty. Mm-hmm. Right. He died for, for Christ, for the faith, and alongside the Japanese Christians he's been ministering to. And so uh, Rodriguez continues to be in prison. Um, he continues to see the suffering that's being inflicted on, on the Japanese Christians. They're very deliberate about making sure that he sees this. Um, and, and they have this really, this really terrible torture, mm-hmm. right? So what they do is they hang the people uh, upside down over a pit. Right. And then they uh, cut them mm-hmm. so to that they're, they slowly are bleeding out while hanging upside down over this pit full of, you know, flies and filth and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just really a brutal, horrible thing because they go slowly and they're crying and they're miserable. Although, when you get into it, although many of the Japanese Christians that are, that are dying this way are, are praying and calling right. out to the Lord and, G- and, and you know, to, to Jesus and Mary. Singing hymns. And singing yeah. hymns. But Rodriguez is sitting there. Well, he Google, Google from there. Yeah, so he's sitting there and, and essentially is agonizing about this and is um, crying out to the Lord and saying, why are you silent in, in, in the face of this persecution, in, in the face of your people um, undergoing uh, these horrible tortures? And eventually he is brought to meet his former mentor, um, Father Ferrara. And we learn that, in fact, he did apostatize and similar to, to Padre Jose in 
the power and the glory, he has taken on a state pension. He has taken a Japanese wife and taken on the identity of a Japanese person who is, in fact, um, helping to discredit the church and helping to persecute the church. And Rodriguez gets a chance to talk with him. And, and Ferrara is essentially trying to convince him that this was the, the good and compassionate thing to do, um, in contrast to what we saw Father Garpe do. Um, because of the the suffering that's being inflicted by the Japanese Christians. Okay, so actually, Ferrara makes two arguments right. that I think actually be- become not only um, important in the novel. Mm-hmm. I'm actually go to the relevance of this book. Mm-hmm. So the one argument is, well, if we capitulate, we apostatize, capitulate, then we uh, relieve the poor peasants' suffering. Right. The other one is that if we, I'm going to choose my words carefully, but if we uh, sort of capitulate and adapt Christianity, adapt mm-hmm. the faith to a Japanese model that doesn't offend Japan, Japan, that fits into their worldview and culture, then how much better is that that Christianity can become a Japanese Christianity? Mm-hmm. And, and so it really becomes, a, if we accompany them by sort of, taking off all, rubbing off all the hard edges off Christianity, it becomes a Japanese Christianity, uh, which is no, obviously in the end becomes no Christianity at all. Um, and I think that that's kind of an interesting, we'll get into this in a minute, the compare and contrast, because that becomes an interesting plot point, um, not plot point, but an interesting reason why I think a lot of, okay, so I'm interrupting your Story. No, that's fine. But that's great. I was, I was, I was first exposed to silence in college and graduate school, and I went to a uh, a very uh, well. I don't know what the word is progressive university, but basically most of my professors uh, in college and graduate courses there were were Marxists. I mean, they were avowed mm-hmm. Marxists, and they loved silence. And it has always been, it was released in 1966, and it was quickly taken up in the heady 60s and 70s and 80s as this, this kind of like progressive Christian novel. Now, I don't know that that's what Indo intended. I would argue not, but yeah, we can talk about we'll that We'll talk about minute. that in a minute. We'll talk about whether he did it, but that's what it had become. Right. And I can almost go into somebody's office and determine, you know, where they lie on the spectrum of orthodoxy by whether they have a copy of Graham Greene's Power and the Glory you know, on their bookshelf or a copy of Endo. And I'm not sure that's what Endo intended, but he got picked up as a sort of, you know, book that is attracted to the left. And I think partly because they're attracted to that second argument that Ferrara makes, which is that, well, look, you know, Christianity, it's just such a, you know, it doesn't have to be this, this thing that is difficult and hard and, Mm -hmm. you know, and is at odds with the world, it can adapt. And Jesus wants it to adapt. And, take all the hard edges off. Now, I don't think that's what Indo intended, but it's almost like he has for the Ferrara character in there as this, in my opinion, as a bad guy, as a right. villain. As a tempter. As a tempter. He's the tempter. And, and the thing is, I think a lot of progressives who read this book actually buy into the lie of the serpent mm-hmm. uh, in there. And they actually were like that part of the book. Right. So that's, yeah. my, no. that's my argument. Yeah, I, I, would, I would generally agree with that argument. Um, but okay, he, so I yeah. interrupted your story. No, that's good. So continuing, so he, he meets his mentor. Um, his mentor tries to convince him to apostatize. And then eventually, um, while he's continuing, to, and there are, of course, other intricacies of the novel. I won't get into all the details. Um, but eventually he is 
asked to apostatize in this very particular way that the Japanese government had devised for, for Christians to reject their faith. Uh, there's this image called a fumii, which is gen- was generally an image of either Christ or Our Lady, um, that they would require you to step on with your foot as a symbolic way of rejecting faith in Christ and allegiance to the Catholic Church. And so they put this image before him. And, and, and by the way, if mm-hmm. you do watch, and I think we'll post, Corey, since you are our communications director at the Lakeshore Academy, mm-hmm. let's, um, let's, let's post that uh, video that we did a couple years ago on the Fumes yes. and the persecution in Nagasaki of the Japanese Christians, because they find these Fume, these, these crucifixes, mm-hmm. and they were cast in bronze. And, you know, they're in museums today, but they're worn flat. Mm-hmm. from thousands and thousands and thousands of feet that stepped on them because they basically come to you and the presentation was this, we're going to kill you, but first we're going to kill your wife and children in front of you. Uh, and then we're going to kill you, uh, but we're going to make you watch your wife and children die a horrible death first. And all of this can be avoided if you simply put your foot on Jesus. And it doesn't matter what you believe in your heart. You can have, you can privately believe whatever you want as long as you, you take the act right. of stepping on Jesus, a formal act of renunciation. And so they put this in front of Father Rodriguez, and he's still agonizing over what to do. And he has this experience um, that is sort of a contrast with the silence that he believes that he's experienced from God the whole time. I would, and, I, and that's where the title, right. explain where the title of the book yeah, comes so, from. So I mentioned earlier that he's been agonizing during this whole time of seeing the persecution that, uh, about God's silence. He perceives that God is not speaking. God is not caring. Um, God is not there. I think we can argue otherwise. But this is Rodriguez's impression. Yeah. God has not answered. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know I'm just interrupting you yeah. terribly, but I can't help it because this is so interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Because in my arguments with people over the years about this book, and like I said, I read it in college and then we had to read it. And I was on the book uh, list in seminary. We had to read and I've, mm-hmm. you know, I've had been arguing about this book for 30 years uh, since I first read it. But my argument to friends has always been that God did answer. Uh, he wasn't silent. His answer came in the form of Garpe's sacrifice. Right. And the, it, and the martyrdom and, of and, all and of the, the martyrdom peasant and, Christians. Right. As they're hanging upside down, bleeding out, singing hymns, that is right. God's answer. Right. And Christ is suffering in and with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he has this experience when the, the Fumier is put before him of believe uh, what he believes to be Christ speaking to him in he, a, an he, audible he way. Think, he thinks. Right. Now, because, you know, I know you're going to be very careful. It isn't that Jesus speaks to him from the crucifix on the ground. Mm-hmm. He thinks that Jesus speaks to him. Right. And that's the question when you read the book is... Who is he actually hearing? Yeah, who's he actually hearing? Yeah, this is his perception. What he believes is that Christ is directly speaking to him. And what does Jesus say to Rodriguez? Essentially that you should do this. You should step on the fumier. This is what I would do. This is what I want you to do. This is the compassionate thing to do. This is how I, the reason I came into this world was to be trampled upon. Right. And when you trample upon me, you're doing the truly Christian thing to save others from their material suffering. And he decides to do it. He steps on the fumier. He's set up in a existence essentially the same as his mentor, Father Ferrara. Now you left out one little oh, detail. Go ahead. At the moment that he steps ah, on yes, the fumier, very- which is at night, what happens? The cock crows. He hears a, he hears a rooster crowing right yes. after she does it. So 
which I have always thought was right there was Endo showing his hand. Right. It's an obvious um, allusion yeah, to, pretty to pretty Peter's obvious tell that, yeah, you know, he's renounced denial. Christ yeah. and, and the cock has crowed. I always thought it was pretty obvious the first time I read the book what, what Endo was saying mm-hmm. and that it was actually uh, uh, Satan speaking to him, not not Jesus. Right, right. It was a temptation and he, and he fails in that temptation. And then just as, as Satan said to Jesus when he's tempting in the wilderness, I will give you all of this comfort and, you know, right. I mean, look, all the things I can give you the, you know, in this world. And the last image we have of Rodriguez in the book is. He has been set up with a wife and a Japanese identity, just like Father Ferrara. Nice big house up on Mm -hmm. a hill. He's living in a nice, as a Japanese aristocrat. Well, and he's complicit in the persecution of the Christians too. Um, One one particular thing is that he's, he's essentially going through like foreign imports looking for Christian articles of devotion. Um, to weed them out for the Japanese authorities. And he's dressed in Japanese clothing. Mm-hmm. He's got, you know, he's mm-hmm. basically living the life of a Japanese aristocrat. Um, and, but then he kind of deludes himself in his heart. He's, he's right. brought the compassion of Jesus to Japan without all of the nasty details of mm-hmm. the faith. Right. So he's, he's self-deceiving himself. But I think just like his mentor, Father Ferrara, before him, you can see that these men are broken. No. That they have, they are not happy and and fulfilled in this. Um, they they have betrayed their Lord, and they are suffering the consequences of it. Even if they are also receiving the material luxuries and and possessions that those martyrs didn't receive. You know, I okay. So as we get into the compare and contrast, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of things to compare and contrast about the two priests and martyrdom and the faith. But one thing that just occurred to me to make a point here, mm-hmm. um, and I, it's a real chip on my soul, shoulder about, about the Indo book. Mm-hmm. And my, I think after thinking about this book for 30 years since I first read it, the more this chip on my shoulder grows because I wish the book was assigned to me to read by Marxist professors. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's what they were. They were, I mean, I went to a very liberal university and my professors all had pictures of like Karl Marx and, you know, whatever, and mm-hmm. they were into it. And they wanted you to read this book. And so it, it, it kind of graded on me always that it was being shoved on me like this supposedly Catholic novel. I'm like, why are these communist professors <laughs> right. all wanting me? You know, why are all my friends who are like communist sympathizers or Marxist sympathizers all into this novel? And it didn't make any sense to me because even when I first read it, I went, wait a minute, this doesn't feel like a communist book at all. But why are you guys into it? It has to do with the materialism of Marxism. Mm. So what Jesus came was to bring relief from material suffering. Right. Right. And so when the Japanese Christians are suffering, uh, and why would you suffer for a, 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 a religious ideal? Right. There's right? no idea of a transcendent goal. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so what it is, is it's like Christianity is the opiate of the masses. The Catholic church is selling you some fairy tale about, you know, the future life. What really matters is surviving and thriving and being comfortable in this world. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really that materialism. And that, that is what in the novel Garpe and the Japanese Christians are willing to give their life in this world for a brief while to mm-hmm. suffer for eternal glory. Right. And it is precisely for our and Rodriguez, it is precisely the argument of why should I'm going to alleviate the suffering of the people in this world and not let them die for a lie. And in the end, it shows that for our and Rodriguez be get, get to be comfortable and Japanese, and their rationalization is that now we can all have material comforts, and material comfort in this life is of greater importance than some fairy tale about the next life. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that is in some sense, I don't think, I think Indo was rejecting that idea. I think he's pretty transparently shows that uh, he thinks that Rodriguez bought into the lie of the serpent mm-hmm. and the cock crows. But I don't know whether the, like the progressives who read this book are just um, too dumb to, to see that or they can't see it through their lens because it seems to me pretty obvious what Indo is saying. And yet, this book is a darling of the left. Right. Well, I think if you're approaching it without that Christian worldview and that Christian context, if you don't understand that Christ suffers alongside us so that we can enter into glory, that we suffer alongside Christ, I should say, to, to enter into glory, and that there is a, a transcendent meaning to suffering, and even just simple allusions like the cock crowing, if you don't have that background— I'm not sure that you see those things. Well, or if you don't believe it. Right. I mean, I had, I had progressive seminary professors who, <laughs> you know, had, you know, doctorates in, you know, mm-hmm. Christian theology. They, 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 they understood the illusion. They got the cock crowing thing. I just didn't believe it. Sure. Right. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, if you don't believe it. And so then Christianity's purpose is to make comfortable people comfortable in this life. Now, what's interesting, since I'm on my anti-Marxist kick here, it's Marxism in the Power and the Glory book. So let's right. talk a little bit about that because you see the brutality of Marxism in the other book and how it is persecuting the church and wanting to drive it out of existence. And it's, a, it's frightened of the church and wants to crush it and, and eliminate right. faith. Well, I think you have an interesting paradox with the lieutenant in the Power and the Glory because he's an idealistic Marxist man who, you know, believes that um, by achieving Marxist goals, he'll, you know, rise up the peasantry and improve their lives. And what is he actually doing? He's taking hostages from peasant villages and shooting them. There's a a marked contrast between his stated goals and what he thinks he can accomplish in the communist cause and what he's actually doing and, and the results that it's having on the people of Mexico. Yeah, there's, I'm, I'm just looking for it in my notes here because there's a great quote that the lieutenant has um, at one point, and I, I can't, I don't have the the quote directly in front of me, but the gist of it is he said, well, I too am as a, a mystic mm-hmm. and I have looked, looked into the future and I see that there is nothing. Right. Right. And, and there is nothing but this material world. Right. I mean, communism has an eschatology. It's, it's an imminent um, coming of the, of the kingdom of peace and, and justice in this world right. without any reference to God. Right. And so that the brutality of, of the communist repression of the faith that you see in the power and the glory you know, it's brutal. And as you, as you pointed out, Graham Greene in 1938 went there and became a Christian because he saw the brutality of the, uh, the repression of the church. And he saw the, in a sense, the, the communist left for what it was. Sure. And he was inspired by the faith and the suffering of faithful Catholics. And, and, and so talk a little bit about in the whiskey, with the whiskey priest, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. There's, there's so many interesting things going on in there. One of them is the necessity of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. The whiskey priest, as he's introduced and he reflects on his life, he talks about how the reason he became a priest is that he thought that it would be a comfortable life. Right. Right. Like, he thought he was going to get basically the deal that, that Ferrara and, and Rodriguez get. Yeah. Well, he that, was going to be a com- comfortable Mexican in, in, in Mexico at the time he grew up. He was going to be a comfortable village, you know, or town priest. Mm-hmm. He would get to go to, you know, get a nice house to live in and good food to eat. And the, you know, he talks about how the church ladies were always throwing parties for the right. priest. Every day mm-hmm. there would be a luncheon and they all want the priest to come to the luncheon. And every day he could get up and, you know, do the little village mass and go to like big luncheons and then uh, drink and 
take a siesta and, mm-hmm. and it was a super comfortable life. And he wasn't motivated like Rodriguez. He wasn't motivated to become a priest or motivated uh, in ministry by wanting to suffer for Jesus, quite mm-hmm. the opposite. Right. And that's, I think, with the interesting contrast, right, is that he, and even when he's running around doing the sacraments for people, he's not running around out of this sense of mission. He's running around to avoid dying. <laughs> right. But as he runs around avoiding dying, he sees that people need him. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's humbled in a sense. He's, yeah. He starts out as a pompous man who's just in it for himself. And he, he becomes aware of his sin. Um, and it's, it's apparent to him. And he realizes his, his weakness and his sinfulness. And he is still, um, you know, tempted by these things. We, we still see him get drunk several times in, in the novel. but. He's, I think, more akin to the, to the sinners that Jesus encountered in the gospel who, who knew the depths of their sin than is Rodriguez, who is, is cocky, really, is yeah. pretty, pretty assured of himself, um, uh, fairly self-righteous, I think. And, and the, the experience of seeing persecution and being persecuted himself doesn't humble him. You know, I remember reading The Power and the Glory when I was on my road to Rome and thinking about, you know, joining the Catholic Church. And, and I remember so many things that impressed me about the book at the time. But there was a line, and I just, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, and I was going to try to copy, uh, copy and share, but the line goes something like, uh, he has this moment of self-awareness at one point, And he said, you know, he says, you know, there's nothing, I'm a whiskey priest. There's nothing pretty good about me. I'm not particularly smart, good-looking, athletic, helpful, holy. holy. Yeah. <laughs> there's really nothing about me except one thing. I can turn uh, bread and wine into the body of Jesus for people. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I, that I have to offer. And that sen- sense of self-awareness, first of all, I was, hum- I, I was struck by his, the, the humility of that, but I was also struck by the power of the Catholic priesthood. Right. And I remember at the time when I was thinking about converting, you know, coming, uh, having been a Protestant pastor, I could never have said that. Mm-hmm. You know, I could only say, well, my value is my ability to articulate you know, the Bible and that I know Hebrew and Greek and I can preach really good sermons and I can do this and this and this. Mm-hmm. But what struck me with, about, it was that powerful statement about the Catholic priesthood. It is the sacramental power mm-hmm. um, to consecrate that, and the people need that. Right. You see in both novels how central that is and how desperate they are for it um, in these situations of persecution that they, they're overjoyed when the priest is there. They can, their children can be baptized who yeah. haven't been baptized since the last time priest came through their town they can receive confession they can they can attend and participate in the mass that all of these things are central and and essential to their lives as christians and that the priest is god's instrument for providing those things and the other things that are sacramentally interesting in it is uh, like for example there's this whole thing where he can't get wine Mm -hmm. right and there's this scene where he finally makes some kind of a deal he fakes this guy out who Mm -hmm. has some wine and he says, well, I need to some buy, buy some alcohol right. beverages. Because, of course, anything's available on the black market. On the black market. So, he's, yeah, he's going to get this black market guy. And he goes, but he wants to disguise it. He wants to, that he's a priest and he wants to use it for that. So he goes, oh, let's buy some wine and some brandy and some whiskey. To, like, get, get me a, like, you know, load up my cart. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, oh, great. But then the guy, the black market guy, is buying it from and goes, hey, why don't we have a drink? And ends up drinking all the, the wine. wine. And so he leaves with, a, with brandy and whiskey, but not the wine. And what's interesting is there is this realization that the sacrament cannot be properly consecrated. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't have the Eucharist with, with brandy. Mm-hmm. 
And I, that was another thing that was interesting to me was just how that book, you know, had some real insights in, into that in terms of the necessity of the sacraments and the proper use of the sacraments and the proper consecration of them. And that that's what the value the whiskey priest has. He is the whiskey priest. He's not a particularly good man, mm-hmm. but he becomes a good man because he's faithful to his, his vocation. Right. He has, he doesn't have the virtue of temperance or chastity or any, right. uh, you know, any of, any of those, but he, he perseveres and he is faithful to his vocation and to Christ and to the people he's called to serve. So as we kind of wind down this episode of book club, um, give me your thoughts about the important compares and contrasts between those. I mean, we've talked about some of them, but, but where do you see the, the most interesting sort of, you know, tensions or, or similarities or dissimilarities between these two books? Yeah. I, we've mentioned several. I think the, the most important one really comes down to what the result of um, in, in the case of um, the whiskey priest, his martyrdom, in the case of Rodriguez, his apostasy, what result that has both for them and for um, the people around them. Um, in the case of the whiskey priest, it, it inspires and it invigorates. And, and it is, um, as, as what I, I think uh, one of the early church fathers said, the, the blood of the martyrs is, is the seed of the church. You can see how him being shot by the government is something that will, in its own way, result in, in new life in the, in the Catholic Church being persecuted in, in Tabasco. And then you contrast that with Rodriguez, and he apostatizes, thinking that this will be an act of charity and mercy to the Christians. And all that does is intensify the persecution that they undergo, and, and he himself is, becomes an agent of that. And so his, his apostasy um, really hurts um, and hampers the church's growth. I think one of the things that, to, to that point, that's important about these two books th- that I think is relevant to all of us mm-hmm. is they illustrate the biblical principle that uh, a tree is known by its fruits. Mm-hmm. In the end, what we do matters. Right. And I, I think, you know, coming out of an evangelical world where what we believe matters, um, these are, I think, both profound Catholic novels because they provide, you know, the, the evangelical sort of thing of like deeds don't matter. It's only what you believe in your heart. Mm-hmm. I think these are profoundly Catholic novels because they say what in the end, what we do matters. Mm-hmm. And it affects what you believe. It, right. And so Rodriguez, who believes all the right things, but does the wrong thing. And the whiskey priest who maybe doesn't believe all the right things, but does the right thing in the end, in the end, um, he's a saint. Um, and, and Rodriguez is, is not. And I think that that what struck me about the two is this profound sense, especially as I was considering Catholicism myself, was that in the end, what we did with our lives and the fruit of that, the actions that we took mattered. Yeah. The other thing that really stuck out to me as I was revisiting these novels before recording is that it, it's the contrast between whether um, your expression of faith is private, simply in your heart, or it's public. And the, the goal of each of these regimes in both of the novels is to make it entirely private. But by doing that, it's not just that, oh, well, it'll be just, you know, our faith will be just as strong as just we're doing it in our hearts. The, the choking off of the public expression ultimately chokes off the private as well, that, that we see that if, if you can't um, 
publicly express your faith and live out your, your commitment to Christ, that it withers on the vine in your heart as well. And so we have the witness of the Japanese martyrs or of the priests who were martyred in Mexico. They gave their life, but they avoided the fate of giving, giving up their faith, of, of losing their, their connection with Christ, contrasted with someone like Rodriguez, who, who accepts the idea that he can have it just privately in his heart, but ultimately loses both the public and the private. Well, another biblical principle is that there will come trials and persecutions. Mm-hmm. Um, the church will be persecuted. There will be times of trial, persecution, apostasy. And during those times, um, we will all have to decide where we stand. And we will all have to either step up and the church will have to step up and be willing to suffer the consequences of standing for Christ or not. And um, there's a lot of rationalizations why we should avoid that. And those, there will be those who rationalize and who step on the fumé. And there will, be, there will be surprising heroes. You know, one of the things that strikes me at the end with the whiskey priest, as you said, the little boy who mm-hmm. begins to talk about him, it's his mother says, well, let's not mention all the bad parts of him. Because right. they had had this book with like a, the little children's book of the right, saints. where it's all kind of like uh, cart- cartoon cartoonishly whitewashed. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you know, I've, I always love that little part because in the end you go, maybe, maybe the saints were more three-dimensional as people than than the kind of children's cartoon books uh, make them. And actually doesn't detract from the saints. It actually, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, makes them much more uh, admirable that they were real men and women with all the faults and foibles of, of, of humans uh, who in the end made a decision for Christ and stepped up and not just in their heart, but with their actions and even ultimately uh, with their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, surrendered themselves um, for Christ. And so, you know, look, these two books are just, I mean, if you really want to read, you know, powerful Catholic novels, these are them, and they they really are this kind of inverted thing, and you can read so much into them. Corey, give a last plug to anybody who might be considering these books, and we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned, just because we've been so deep in the themes of the novel, is that they're both just really great reads. Oh, like, they're, yeah. they're very exciting and fast-paced yeah. books, and I think it'll really keep your attention, um, and and that kind of gives it the right to, <laughs> to drop all of the themes on you at the same time because it's not dull or dry. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene mm-hmm. and... And a Silence by an- Shusako Endo. There you go. So find them uh, in your bookstore or on your Kindle or wherever you get your books and uh, take a read and uh, send us an email. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.